Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Hello and welcome to The Python Show. I'm your host, Mike Driscoll. And today we have a great guest, Dan Hillard, who is the author of two Python books. And I believe he sometimes writes for Real Python as well. Anyway, welcome to the show, Dane. Thanks, Mike. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to programming? Sure. So uh, I'm currently a technical architect at Ithaca, uh, which is a nonprofit in the education space and okay. is best known probably for JSTOR, which is the academic uh, database and research platform. And I've been mm -hmm. there for almost a decade now, nine years and change. Um, Wow. During which time I've done a lot of Python work, uh, more recently a little bit of front-end uh, heavy work as well in the JavaScript and, and TypeScript space. And that might start to get at some of my background, which has gone through many languages and, and uh, has spanned about 15 years now, I guess. So early on... I, uh, out, of, out of school, was doing some MATLAB and C programming. I mm -hmm. moved into some Ruby programming with a friend for a hobby project at one point and liked the kind of dynamic language space quite a lot. Yeah. Coming from, from something like C. And mm -hmm. since then, uh, found found Python, I think, by way of Django. Uh, having wanted to to find a new kind of web framework to use for my personal website and yeah. loved Python and kind of used it ever since that point. And yeah, so th that kind of, kind of brings me up to today. Uh, JavaScript and TypeScript are interesting. It's nice to see lately some of the interplay that all these languages are kind of borrowing from each other too. Learning a little bit from each other as they go, if you will. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun to see uh, how the languages are are similar and how they differ. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Django. Could you tell me about how you ended up like doing Django versus one of the many other web frameworks in Python? Yeah, I think that I was looking for something that had quite a few batteries included at the time. I was looking for something where I could upload uh, photography, uh, photography being a personal hobby of mine. Yeah. And the ability to manage all of those things as uh, kind of objects and, and the Django admin, the power of the Django admin kind of out of the box was really kind of enticing to me. So uh, I had tried, I think, Spring uh, at one point before that and PHP before that uh, from my site and they weren't mm -hmm. quite cutting it the way I wanted and, and didn't have frameworks that jibed with what I wanted quite as well at the time. So uh, yeah. Django offered a lot of that out of the box and it was really nice. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, power powering a lot more of the internet than <laughs> some people might expect. Yeah. It's fun to see what, uh, what websites are being made with Django nowadays and, now fast API is getting a lot of a lot of coverage and use too. Mm -hmm. 
You know, um, when I started with Python, it was like a Plo and Zope world. It was Plo and Zope and Django, like the two big ones. Mm-hmm. So. I've used Fast API uh, for a couple of other smaller projects and quite enjoyed that as well. And um, I think there's, you know, a, a lot of it, of course, depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And you know, there's never really a right answer. Um, but there's a few, yeah. a few strong players out there. Yeah, I keep thinking I'm going to pick that up, but I just don't do a lot of web programming yet. So one yeah. of these days. <laughs> and that's uh, that's a good point because it's so much of self-learning, I think, is really born more out of uh, not necess- not quite necessity, but uh, something that's very applicable, you know, practically mm-hmm. to something you're trying to do. And it can be hard to contrive a, contrive a project to try and use uh, something for if you don't quite have something. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to web frameworks, I'm like, there's so many th- ways to do a website. Now you, you WordPress is a no code solution. Mm-hmm. Um, you can write a website with Markdown and then use a whole bunch of different other static website builders. You don't really need to learn a framework, but you probably should if you want to become marketable. So, <laughs> yeah, and I think it creates a lot more options for you as as things scale, um, because you can swap out the presentation layer with mm-hmm. a front end framework, or you can swap out the logic layer with a web framework, and you you have that kind of optionality. Whereas if you're using a, a no code or low code solution or, you know, coding raw HTML or something like that. It, it really kind of sticks you into that solution. That being yeah. said on a recent project, I was like, I don't want to deal with anything. And I just wrote an HTML file <laughs> with all the there CSS <laughs> and JavaScript contained in it. So, you know, it's some of it's up to your whim as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like the flexibility that the web gives you. Although the dizzy number of options makes my head hurt, so yeah, the the web space has been uh, quite fast moving, shifting sand over the last uh, many years, and it's I, I've I think gotten to the point where I no longer can keep up with it. I felt like I had my <laughs> finger on the pulse <laughs> for a good few years, and now I'm kind of like, well, I'll ignore this thing for now or i'll ignore that framework mm-hmm. for now. yeah you gotta select your select your uh areas of focus eventually yeah so on a tangential note this is it's not quite related to web programming but what are your favorite python packages or modules so you could make it about web programming if you wanted to but <laughs> i could uh i mean I, yeah i'll say django of course is is still a uh got a big place in my heart. Um, mm-hmm. More recently, I've been looking at some command line things. So uh, projects like Rich and Textual are really mm-hmm. interesting. And Typer is really interesting. And yep. uh, Click, I think, was also great. I, I went with Typer in the end just because I like the, the type annotation-based approach that it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But yeah, this kind of space of productivity, tooling, frame, frameworks for building useful things for other people is, is kind of where my 
joy is. Yeah, I've been really enjoying reading about them. I'm trying to trying to dive into textual more. And I recently stumbled across Askematics, which is kind of an old school terminal creation utility in Python. It looks looks very 80s, whereas you know, um textual looks more like you're creating a web app almost in your terminal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. it's uh, some some of what I've put together with textual so far reminds me of kind of an old BIOS configuration screen or something. Like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I can see that in, in the best possible way, of course. Yeah, the thing I like about it is you can add like almost animations to the terminal with lots of colors if you want, and mm-hmm. I just think that that it just makes it stand out to me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, I think a couple other, um, a couple others maybe that come to mind for me recently are rough. Uh, so mm-hmm. using rough for linting is, has been really nice. The, the bit that I've tried it, uh, they just came out with a format or two, so you can potentially yep. condense your linting and formatting into one tool, which can be nice. Uh, and I think I'll probably look to convert more of our projects to it, at least for the linting part um, mm-hmm. pretty soon, because some of what we're using currently is a bit on the slow side and a bit yeah. configuration heavy. So, Yeah, I really like rough and I like, I like the uh, Charlie's, um, the creator of roughs. I like his vision for where rough could go in the future. It's a really neat, neat package. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see someone with a vision like that and, and starting to bring pieces of that to fruition and um, probably helps with a uh, contribution and things like that. I'm sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a popular project and I think it's really cool that he's gotten it. So it's got, it's grown so much and I think it's only like a year old now. So mm-hmm. that's cool. Yeah. Um, and I think Rich and Textual are receiving a lot of uh, well-deserved positive attention too, and it's great yes. to see some some uh, oomph behind these things. Yeah, it's really cool that uh, we have. I think there's those two, and there's a a data. What is it called? Basically, a type typing for data. I can't think of what the name of the package is, but anyway, uh, pedantic. Is that pedantic, one? yes. There's, there's like three or four of these big popular packages and they're open source and yet the makers have found a way to monetize um, an open source project. And they're all doing it in a different way. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, increasingly necessary to find these different successful models and, and to be able to spread the, the wealth, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that that will drive uh, more innovation in the open space world. I mean, there already is a ton, but I think it's cool that it's now got a little bit of a little bit of support uh, monetarily as well. Yeah, um, it, it's I, my maybe naive hope is that there will be a, a wave coming of of that kind of thing that. Um, with enough successful projects in this space and a model for how that can be done, that more of yeah. that will be po- 
possible for people who are willing to put in, I'm sure, the enormous amount of initial legwork to to get to that point. But hopefully, mm-hmm. in some ways, decreases the barrier to entry uh, for that for that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, hopefully, GitHub sponsors will help with that. And I know there's some other projects. I'm not sure if they're they're quite ready yet, but there's some that are in the wings that are coming along that might help open source even more. And hopefully that, hopefully that stuff all works out. We'll find out. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway. There's a, there's a book that was a nice examination of some of that. Um, and unfortunately, I'm forgetting the name of it. Maybe we can put the, the links into the, into the notes. Mm-hmm. But um, it kind of examines what, has made some successful open source projects and oh cool. Think of it. I should have <laughs> remembered the name before I brought it up. Maybe, but that's, okay. that's okay. Feel free to send it along. I'll I'll include it, and everyone else can learn from 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 it. Yeah. So uh, you brought up the topic of books. I see you've written two two books. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you decided to write multiple books about Python, or and you know how did that go. Sure. Um, so the first book was Practices of the Python Pro, uh, which came out, I think, in in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that was born out of an examination of some of what I saw um, my some of my friends doing, uh, transitioning from some other discipline into software, and. Mm-hmm navigating that space and trying to figure out you know, how do I, how do I think about code having no formal training? Um, mm-hmm. what, are, what are the important things I should think about as I'm, th- as I'm trying to build a project and uh, what is the, what is the sort of mindset I should be in as I enter the professional software world? Um, yeah. And so the book is largely kind of philosophical, I would call it. Um, <laughs> and takes people through uh, from from basically a sense of what software is nebulously to really how they might work through a project and think about the different aspects of uh, loose coupling and abstraction and um, and all that using Python as as the example language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think. A lot of the principles within it apply, you know, to any any language really that you might be interested in. Um, yeah. And then the second book, by contrast, is a very technical and very specific book about Python packaging called "Publishing mm-hmm. Python Packages," and takes a certain perspective on what all is out there in the Python packaging world today because mm-hmm. there is quite a few uh, quite a few points at which you can choose a number of options and um, attempts to take a, a sort of tried and true approach with a little bit of forward looking what what's going to serve you well for a while uh, mm-hmm. and ultimately tries to help you work through ending up with a working automated pipeline for publishing a package and um, making changes to it iteratively over time. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds cool. What did, how did you uh, keep ahead of all the, all the different changes that were happening while you were writing that book? 
it was a exercise in active research for sure. And mm -hmm. again, I, I think it is a challenge to write something in this space where there are so many options and like you say, uh, kind of actively evolving in some cases. Uh, but I think the approach I took was to, again, choose a perspective, but mention all of the alternatives and say, mm. and try to break things up in a way that says, here's an area of responsibility. This book is going to use this particular option, but mm -hmm. know that this responsibility can be handled by these alternatives. And if you like one of those other alternatives better, here's where you can think about swapping that out. So okay. kind of, um, expressing the packaging life cycle as a set of different modules, if you will, or, or concerns at least, and um, yeah. trying to give people a mental model for, for changing that stuff out. Cool. So can you yeah. think of any lessons you learned when you're working on either of these books? I think the biggest thing that my editor, um, bless her heart, pounded into me uh, <laughs> over and over was that you can't, no, no matter how well you might explain something, you can't explain it until you've explained all the things it depends on. <laughs> and mm -hmm. So there's a good amount of what what's called kind of the expert's dilemma right where you know if you know a thing and you forget what it's like to learn that thing for the first time and yeah you want to in a book make sure you bring the reader with you completely which is often uh often a difficult thing because you take for granted quite a quite a few key points mm -hmm. uh, so it's the value of value of an editor uh, or, or any sort of set of other eyes on the book while it's happening is for people to say, I don't think you really introduced this topic yet. Uh, you should, should go back yeah. and explain that a bit before you actually jump into this thing deeper. So do, that, that brings up an interesting thing for me. Did you get to choose who you, who the audience for the book would be or what did your editor slash you know, publishing company choose the audience for you. Yeah, I with Manning, uh, who I published both of these books with, uh, I did have an opportunity to uh, choose the audience, and, and in fact, kind of as part of the proposal process, you're asked to define who that audience should be, and okay, that certainly can change a little bit over time. But they want to make sure that all the way up front, you've thought about who it is you're trying to to teach something to, and Mm. Um, so the the first book is definitely it's got a, a broad audience i think it starts at total beginner of course um mm -hmm. but could go up into se semi-advanced uh folks especially maybe if you're not using python today and, and looking to use python um the the publishing python packages book by contrast i think is meant for folks who know Python are pretty mm -hmm. comfortable with it, but are then looking to take the next step and write code that they can share with other people. So yeah. Um, useful to, useful to think about what kinds of things those different audiences might know already and what they don't know already and um, mm -hmm. making sure to have a, a plan of attack for that. 
So which of the two books did you think was harder to write and why? The second book I think was harder because the first book just out of sort of life situation, mm-hmm. I, I had quite a bit of time to dedicate to. Um, okay. The second book, I was quite a bit busier with life. And yeah. um, even having done the first one, you you can forget how much time it really takes to write a, yeah. write a book well. Um, and I think yeah. with the first book being much more conceptual, it was easier to sort of write from the heart, if you will. Whereas mm-hmm. the second book, I had to really dig into, okay, what are the options here? Is there uh, something significant I should compare and contrast about these? I need to make sure I'm understanding them myself well enough to make sure my comparisons and contrasts are accurate. Mm-hmm. It was much more like a, an academic exercise. So. Yeah. Huh. That's cool. I've noticed uh, some topics, at least in my head, they just kind of flow when I want to write about them. And other topics, it just takes a lot of research and development to get that get that chapter or that article um, out on your paper. Yeah, I would I would agree fully with that. So yeah. if you uh, were to meet somebody at like PyCon or someplace and they wanted to know uh, how do I write a book? What kind of advice would you give to them? I'd, I'd basically ask first to hear the elevator pitch for that. I think like it's important mm-hmm. to have an opinion and a point of view about what you want to say or what you want to teach people. Um, mm-hmm. Because without that driving force, um, I don't know that, I don't know that you can, find it in you to, to produce that much, <laughs> that much content, if you will. Right. And yeah. so I would just, I would ask folks like, what is, what is it about your experience that you want to share and um, to really start with that and take that through every, every milestone of the book, every juncture of the book to make sure that you always kind of come back to that route. Yeah, that's pretty good advice. Sounds very general, I guess, in as I'm reflecting on it. But I I think the I think the thing that can be lost, especially if you're eight chapters in and you're kind of tired of writing, is that (laughs) you start to switch into this executive functioning mode of, well, I need to get this next chapter out tomorrow at all costs. Yeah. uh, so it's going to say whatever it says, and that's that. And being able to have a bit of a push and pull relationship with your editor and uh, things like that, I think is important because some people might feel obligated and you are obligated to some degree <laughs> contractually. So, but yeah. some people might feel obligated to do it exactly to the letter of the schedule and things like that. But everyone's people and we should work with people and figure things out to be, to be best. And um, at least in my experience, the publisher is interested in making sure the book is really good for the people that it's trying to, to be good for. So um, you can't do that by just 
churning out tractors necessarily. Yeah, that's true. I think I think when I've had this conversation, so at, at PyCon is usually like an author's small group meeting in a kind of in the open open space area. And people who ever ask about this, they're like, can you make money? Can you, you know, what topics are best? They're, they always ask those basic questions and you're like, well, you need to be passionate about it. You need to be knowledgeable about it. You need to be able to sell, sell it. And you have to realize that you may not make any money off of it too. Are you okay with that? If the answer is yes, then you, you could probably write a book, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would agree that getting into getting into the book business is not something you should go into expecting to make money. It is possible. It is. It is. It is uh, certainly possible, but it it takes definitely that kind of. I, th- I think you're describing kind of like a product mindset, right? Like yeah. Figure out something people want. Figure out if you're someone who can give that to them, and then find mm-hmm. a way to tell them about it, so that they know to get it from you. Um, yeah, I mean, there's also the passion part because I, right. you know, some some of my books I wrote them because I knew I was passionate about that particular package in Python, and I didn't care if it sold well. I just wanted to write that book. So. <laughs> It's all, it's all about, uh, you know, how, do you really want to do that big time suck and write that book or not? Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. So, and we'll change the topic slightly. What else have you been working on lately? That's a good question with maybe a long list of answers. Um, <laughs> so, well, so my... My role at Ithaca as a technical architect means that I am responsible for kind of helping a variety of our product teams deliver software faster, better, safer. Mm -hmm. And um, most recently, I kind of had this moment of reflection on all the different little tools that we have that help us look at logs or, you know, do Mm -hmm. some kind of auditing or help us do something during local development. And there's all these little pockets of, of these tools that this or that team developed or that uh, we had in the old way of doing things. Now we have mm-hmm. the new way of doing things. And inevitably, of course, with any large team, some of these things are out of date and they don't work anymore. Or there's mm-hmm. now six ways of doing them. And, um, so I, I'm thinking about how to bring together some of that tooling and um, build a bit more of a holistic tooling experience for folks. Um, okay. And, and I think that helps existing staff and also definitely will help new staff figure out how to do things and what kinds of things they might even be able to do uh, mm-hmm. right now. Uh, it's, it's maybe a bit of a challenge to discover all of that. So, uh, this kind of productivity boosting is what I'm really passionate about and and uh, trying to make strides with. Um, and that's that's kind of how I'm using rich and textual. Okay. 
That's cool. Yeah, it's really fun to to hear how other people do things. Because I think some people, they don't know what an architect is. So actually, maybe that's a good question. What it, what does an architect do at your business? Maybe you could explain that a little bit. Because some people sure. might think you're talking about like a senior senior engineer or a staff engineer or something. I mean, maybe you just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and and my path maybe is kind of like that. I, I started at Ithaca as a software engineer and then moved through to lead and principal. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I am an architect at Ithaca. Those aren't that's not a linear path necessarily. Architect is a separate kind of thing. Uh, okay. And I think the key difference that I that I see is that the focus is on kind of aligning to business needs, which is that sounds like maybe every engineer, but um, <laughs> sort of at that sort of at that like broad business level. Like, what is our business strategy, and do we have mm-hmm. the capabilities? to be able to, you know, affect change toward that strategy. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. a bigger, a bigger scope to it a lot of the time uh, and make sure that um, we're, you know, six months or a year ahead of some of the things that we need to be able to do. So um, yeah, talking a lot with folks doing sales and talking to, the partners, the business partners that we have and um, mm. making sure that we understand what it is they're trying to do so that we don't run into a wall six months from now. Kind of thing. So you're kind of the, the filter slash translator for the business to the tech team in a way. In some ways. And of course that happens at different levels too. Um, with oh, yes. product Managers is talking to the engineers on their teams and, and so on. So, it's one of many ways that happens. Um, and I, I think another piece is, is that I talk with the engineers across the entire platform. So yeah, uh, getting, getting kind of a view of the systems as a whole and being able to think about how to both make sure they're a little bit consistent across all of those, if there's a reasonable consistency to have mm-hmm. uh, and also making sure folks do change management and understanding how, what they're changing and how they're changing. It affects the system outside of their scope. And um, Yeah. So as an architect, sorry, I was just going to ask, is is it kind of like where you like created almost like a blueprint of how, you know, feature X might look and then you give it to, I don't know, a junior, junior engineering team to, to solve how they would want to solve it or, that yeah. too high level? No, I think that's I think that's close. We I think try not to prescribe too much to the teams exactly what to to build, but we have conversations with them for sure that that kind of draw those big picture boxes about well, this is a major part of the concern of what we're trying to build, and mm-hmm. it needs to connect to this other thing that we already have, and we're not going to change that part right now. We just want to use it as it is, and yeah. Um, as we scale, this part might become a concern. So let's keep that, you know, in the back of our minds. And mm-hmm. uh, so it, it is building a blueprint, not necessarily as a handoff, but as a conversation for sure. Yes. Yeah. 
That's not a detailed blueprint, it's more of a, we want to create widget X, here's what it's going to do. You can figure out how to do the actual pieces. Yeah, and there's this idea of kind of building a, a reference architecture, which may mean different things to different people, but in my mind, it's kind of an institutional memory of how we've solved these problems in the past. And mm -hmm. if you're trying to solve this same problem, uh, you might consider doing it the way we've done it because that worked. Or yeah. if you have new reasons why that won't work, we should incorporate that into our understanding and uh, just kind of building a practice around that. That's cool. Thanks for taking the time to explain how that works at your particular organization. Sure. I know it uh, differs greatly <laughs> depending where you're at. So Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, every every place I've been, they they do things a little bit differently, and the the titles you you get and what their responsibilities are differ wildly. So, yep. But your 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 business seems to follow the more classical definition of architect, at least at least the one I've heard lately. So, awesome. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I think that's all the questions I had for you. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be on my show, and I hope you'll join me again sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks so much, Mike. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you. Make sure to leave a review. This makes our day and fuels future episodes. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show.